Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 8th edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed the long-standing dual occupation rule for use in the permanent disability rating formula. Here's what happened in the case of Powell versus the WCAB in the city and county of San Francisco. Pope Powell sustained an injury to his shoulders and elbow while employed by the city and county of San Francisco. The parties disputed the occupational groove to be used in the rating formula for his injury. Powell's job title was Director of Fleet Management and Operations. He supervised five employees, dealt with budgets and requests for proposals, and wrote contracts, policies, and procedures. He spent 80 to 85 percent of his time on a computer performing tasks such as emailing, creating spreadsheets and budgets, and drafting various documents. Powell contended his occupational group was 112. The city contended that occupational group 212 applied. Group 212 was undisputably appropriate for Powell's managerial duties. This group applies to mostly professional and medical occupations, with work predominantly performed indoors, but may require driving to locations of businesses. And Group 112 is the most appropriate group for mostly clerical occupations with the highest demand for use of a keyboard and prolonged sitting. The dissenting board member, after reconsideration, found Group 211 to be the most appropriate. It applies to mostly clerical occupations with an emphasis on frequent finger, fingering, handling, and possibly some keyboard work. Typical occupations for Group 211 include a bank clerk, inventory clerk, or a licensed clerk. The majority of the board opinion affirmed the work comp judge's classification of Group 212, but the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case. The court noted that more than one occupational group may apply to an applicant's job. Prior case law has established that where the duties of the employee embrace the duties of two forms of occupation, the rating should be for the occupation which carries the higher percentage. No precise percentage of time for performing the duties of the higher percentage occupation group is required, but rather the pertinent inquiry is whether performance of those duties is an integral part of the worker's occupation. The Court of Appeal agreed with the dissenting board member that the proper focus is on the claimant's physical work activities, which supported a finding that Group 211 should be used since it produces the highest percentage rating. This past summer, Express Scripts began blocking coverage for approximately 1,000 active ingredients used to make a variety of compounded medicines, mostly ointments, creams, and powders that are found in topical treatments. The move by the nation's largest pharmacy benefit manager was made in response to the growing cost of some of these medicines. But three compounding pharmacies are fighting back. 
Three compounders filed a lawsuit charging Express Scripts is illegally blocking legitimate prescriptions and unfairly forcing patients to seek more expensive treatments or forego medical care. The compounders allege that Express Scripts is violating federal law because the pharmacy benefits manager allegedly lacks the authority to alter the terms of affected health plans. The safety of some compounded medication became a hot topic two years ago after an outbreak of fungal meningitis was traced to a compound pharmacy in Massachusetts and led to dozens of deaths. This prompted Congress to pass a law called the Drug Quality and Security Act to boost federal oversight. The FDA, meanwhile, has responded by increasing inspections and issuing warning letters. Compound pharmacies, however, have been chafing over the law, which creates two classes of compounders, one that voluntarily chooses to register with the FDA and another that may decline to do so. The first group is subject to certain conditions, such as meeting good manufacturing practices, but the FDA hopes the requirements will give hospitals and physicians the confidence needed to purchase needed compounded medicines. Recently, the International Academy of Compounding Pharmacists, a trade group, began lobbying Congress to alter the law and make technical corrections. And now our fraud report. Sabrosa evidence helped convict a San Diego nurse after two-week criminal jury trial. 35-year-old Golnaz Galapur was sentenced to six years of local custody after being convicted by a jury of 12 felony counts, including perjury and insurance fraud. A restitution hearing will be held at the future date to determine how much she will pay in restitution to Sharp Healthcare for costs they incurred in handling her fraudulent claim. Golapur was a nurse at Sharp Hospital who initially told her doctors in January 2007 that she injured her back waking up from a nightmare. She first filed for state disability benefits, but after learning the limits of that benefit, she filed instead for workers' compensation. All of the defendant's medical expenses were covered, and she received more than $88,000 for the two years she claimed she could not work after her injury. Gallipur continued to claim in 2013 that she was worse off than before a surgery she had as part of her treatment. But she was filmed on several occasions in a normal state with no apparent injuries. Gallipur appeared hurt and in need of a walker only when she was going to doctor's visits or attending legal meetings. She testified at her deposition that she lived with her parents and that her mother had to bathe her and help her get dressed. She claimed to need to use the walker at all times, that she was depressed, had not gone out on any dates, and was not involved in any relationships. She also said she had significant gastrointestinal problems and generally stayed at home groggy from her medications. After a deposition, Gallipur was filmed over an eight-hour period as she went shopping, dined at restaurants, and moved about in a normal fashion without any sign of pain or discomfort and without a walker. On another occasion, she was filmed during a 12-hour period during which she moved potted plants on her balcony, went shopping, 
walked several hundred yards to go to a picnic and back and went to a movie. In the videos, she was observed with the same man who is now her husband, and they appeared to be living together. After a two-week jury trial, the defendant was convicted on eight counts of perjury and four counts of insurance fraud. And in medical news, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services says that hospitals have achieved what they say is historic improvement in medical errors. The deadly problem of hospital error burst into the national spotlight in 1999 when the Institute of Medicine estimated that as many as 98,000 people die every year because of hospital mistakes that allow patients to contract infections, fall, develop pneumonia from being on a ventilator, or suffer other serious but preventable harm. In 2010, the HHS Inspector General estimated that poor care in hospitals contributed to the deaths of 180,000 patients covered by Medicare. But according to the new data, about 50,000 people are alive today because U.S. hospitals committed 17% fewer medical errors in 2013 than they did in 2010. The study showed a 9% decline in the rate of hospital-acquired conditions such as infections, bed sores, and pneumonia. Officials offered several possible explanations for the steep decline. Hospitals have made a concerted effort to improve safety, spurred in large part by changes in how Medicare pays them. President Barack Obama's health care reform law requires CMS to reduce the reimbursement rate for hospitals that readmit too many patients within 30 days, an indication of poor care the first time around. As a result of the improvements in hospital safety, 1.3 million fewer patients suffered a hospital-acquired condition in 2013 than if the 2010 rate had remained steady. That produced savings of some $12 billion. A new study published in the medical journal Brain claims that scientists may have discovered the brain off switch. The research demonstrated that turning on a receptor in the brain and spinal cord counteracts chronic nerve pain in male and female rodents. Activating the A3 receptor prevents or reverses pain that develops slowly from nerve damage without causing analgesic tolerance or intrinsic reward, as is the case with opiate painkillers. Pain is an enormous problem and causes suffering and comes with a multi-billion dollar societal cost. Current treatments are problematic because they cause intolerable side effects, diminish quality of life, and do not sufficiently quell pain. The new findings suggest that researchers should focus future work on the A3AR pathway, in particular as its activation provides robust pain reduction across several types of pain. A3AR agonists are already in advanced clinical trials as anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer agents and show good safety profiles. The idea is to further develop A3AR agonists as possible new therapeutics to treat chronic pain and reduce the use of opioid medication. 
And in regulatory news, the Labor Code authorizes the DWC to assess penalties against claim administrators whose conduct has the effect of delaying the IMR process. As a result, the DWC announced it will assess administrative penalties for claims administrators who fail to timely submit relevant medical records in cases pending independent medical review. Under current regulations, Maximus Federal Services Incorporated, the organization designated by the DWC to conduct IMR reviews, sends the claims administrator a notice of assignment and request for information in an IMR case. The notice advises the relevant medical records to be submitted, which must be provided to Maximus within 15 days of the date on the notice. Failure to submit the records within those 15 days will now subject a claims administrator to administrative penalty of $500 for each day the records are untimely, up to a maximum of $5,000. The DWC will send an order to show cause to claims administrators who may be liable for a penalty with the facts upon which the penalty is based, the penalty amount, and the administrative process for contesting the penalty. Administrative penalties will commence in cases where there is a failure to timely submit medical records dated on and after December 1, 2014. For IMR cases currently pending as of December 1, the penalty procedure will commence if the relevant medical records are not received on or before December 15. The DWC has posted an order adjusting the durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies section of the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system. This order is required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The update includes all changes identified in CMS and Medicaid Services Change Request number 8999. The order is effective for services on or after January 1 and is the first Medicare update for calendar year 2015. The order adopting the adjustment can be found on the DWC website. The DWC has posted a second 15-day notice of modification to the proposed medical treatment utilization schedule regulations. The proposed modifications include clarification that the MTUS shall be the primary source of guidance for treating physicians and physician reviewers. The medical evidence search sequence was changed to clarify the steps required to find medical evidence. Any search for medical evidence begins and likely ends with the MTUS. Searching for medical evidence outside the MTUS is limited to situations where a medical condition or injury is not addressed by the MTUS or if the MTUS presumption of correctness is being challenged. A flowchart is included in the notice to provide visual aid for the medical evidence search sequence. A treating physician who seeks treatment outside of the MTUS bears the burden of rebutting the MTUS presumption of correctness by a preponderance of scientific medical evidence. Any citation provided by a treating physician or medical reviewer shall be the primary source relied upon which contains the recommendation that guides the reasonableness and necessity of the requested treatment that is applicable to the injured worker's medical condition or injury. 
If more than one citation is provided, the narrative shall explain how each guideline or study cited provides additional information that guides the reasonableness and necessity of the requested treatment. And in other news, since the implementation of tiered rating in 2013, the State Compensation Insurance Fund has broadened its pricing structure and allowed more accurate rating to an individual policyholder's risk. Prior to tiered rating, the state fund introduced the group insurance discount to recognize and reward employers whose loss history demonstrated a culture of safety. Trade associations who had agreements with the state fund received an administrative fee which averaged approximately 4% to 6% of premium. Throughout 2014, State Fund performed an in-depth evaluation to understand how the group insurance discount was working with tiered rating. The study concluded that the tiered rating plan has the same effect on policyholders as the group discount, reflecting individual performance and recognizing employers with demonstrated safety records with appropriate pricing. In light of this analysis, the State Fund has decided to discontinue group insurance and will not be renewing group agreements in 2015. Additionally, the group insurance discounts will be eliminated April 1, 2015 for all groups, including the California Farm Bureau Federation. In announcing this change, the fund said that the workers' compensation market has changed dramatically and the decision to discontinue the group insurance program is not a reflection on the quality of the employer association's value to their industry and members. The state fund recognizes the value employer associations bring to California and will seek opportunities to collaborate with them on safety and other issues important to California employers. Cedric's Claims Management Services has acquired Absentees LLC, a Chattanooga-based software application developer and service provider. Absentees builds technology platforms designed to help employers ensure compliance with federal and state law and accommodation regulations. Its proprietary web-based LeaveLink and ADA Link software solutions help companies navigate the framework of the Family and Medical Leave Act, state-specific leave laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the ADA Amendments Act of 2008. The company's software platforms currently administer leaves of absence and accommodation benefits for more than 500 organizations and 3 million workers. Absentee software platforms will benefit Sedgwick's claim services within the framework of the Family and Medical Leave Act, state-specific leave laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and amendments. Last October, Sedgwick made another significant acquisition of T&H Global Holdings. That acquisition includes membership in the Global VRS Adjusters Organization, which is one of the top organizations in corporate and complex loss adjustment and claims management worldwide. Sedgwick's acquisition will expand the company's international footprint beyond North America. In 2010, Cedric was acquired by affiliates of Stone Point Capital LLC and Hellman and Friedman LLC. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates. 
past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.